All right. Thank you, Pastor Greg. Thank you, Viewer Bible Fellowship. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. It's a pleasure to be uh, here with my home church and uh, teaching to the home team this time. So that's always a good feeling. And uh, thank you to the elders as well of the church. Um, as Pastor Greg said, we are in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 19. That's where we're going to be hanging out for the majority of the night. Um, if you'd like to turn your Bibles there at this time. And Pastor Greg went through chapter 18 last week, and now we're at the time in uh, David and Saul's relationship where it's really like this, uh, almost like an Elmer Fudd, Bugs Bunny deal, where uh, Saul is continually trying to kill David. Um, at this point, the, the running count is uh, three attempts on David's life. Um, twice, Paul tried to uh, pin him against the wall with the spear, and David eluded that, and then also um, when Paul, or sorry, when Saul was giving away his daughter to David as a dowry, he requested uh, uh, the foreskins, 200 foreskins of Philistines, and this was an attempt to uh, put David in harm's way, and uh, so that the Philistines would take care of his business for him. Um, and I'm happy to report that my father-in-law did not request the same dowry. <laughs> When I asked for uh, his blessing, although he did pull a power move on me, which we won't go into at this point, but that's a, that's a story we can talk about later. Um, but let's dive into chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Once again, this is an, an example of we see the brotherly love that Jonathan has for David. Um, we know that in chapter 18, verse 3, that he had made a covenant with David. And now Jonathan is going against his father's will um, to warn and protect his friend. Back to uh, verse 4. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because of his deeds have, bought, have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as long as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So, so far, so good. Jonathan makes his appeal for reconciliation on the basis that David has done nothing but good for Saul. Uh, he took his life into his own hands by risking uh, the battle with Goliath, and he's done nothing but good for Israel. So Saul has no legitimate cause for killing David. In verse 7, 
And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought the Philistines and struck them down with a great blow, so that they fled before him. You know, I find it interesting that Saul has now tried to kill David four times. And David continues to come back and serve Saul. David knows that he is next in line to be king, but he has submitted himself to God's will. One lesson we can take from that, whatever name you want to call it, a calling, a purpose, God's plan, God's will, God's calling doesn't always mean that things are going to be easy after that. In fact, Jesus promised us just the opposite. John 16, says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Now, can you imagine how David feels at this point? Let's backtrack to when David was a young boy and Samuel comes to his house. What would that feel like as a shepherd boy probably never having aspirations of doing anything else but being a shepherd. And the prophet comes to your house and says, you are going to be king. And you know that as a word from God. The purpose that he must have felt, the sense of self-worth, or how courageous and how powerful he felt when he defeated Goliath. He's the only one in his whole country that was willing to go fight him. He cuts off the head of the giant, and he drags it back to Jerusalem. I mean, this is like the stuff of legends. None of us can even come close to that type of feeling, that, that sense of strength and courage, and knowing that you were the one that did it. You were the one that was willing to stand up, willing to stand up for God and trust in God and get the job done. He must have been riding high. And he knows what his future holds. He knows that he's next in line to be king, and that's surely going to be the next step in this process. But now he has to deal with Saul. After all of that jubilation, this euphoria, these true highs that he must have felt, and now Saul is standing in his way. Saul is... A coward, he's jealous, a loose cannon, full of paranoia, and his sole focus is to end David's life. I think it's important that we recognize how disappointed David must have felt that he has this calling. He has this plan. He knows it's the sure thing. He's already taken these steps to act it out. And now he's in the king's chambers with a king who wants nothing more than to kill him. And what is David's response? He continues to be faithful every day. Because David knows that God's calling on his life is not circumstantial. 
It's not based on the external factors in his life. You know, I think taken from this story, what we can do for our own calling on, on our lives that God has put on our lives is we can look at how we can make our call, God's calling on us circumstantial. The first thing we do is we put a timeline on God's calling. It's not, it's not happening quick enough. Right? I've, I've, I've taken all the steps that I need to take and I haven't ended up at the point that I want to be at. And why is it taking so long? Second, we make God's calling about abilities or gift. We, we, we have something that's put on our hearts and we think, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't really know that much of the Bible. I can't, I can't go out and witness to people. If I go out and witness to people, uh, I won't know how to respond if they ask me anything in return. Or, you know, I don't want to go to a Bible study because I'm just not a talker, right? I don't, I, I don't really want to grow in my I don't want to take these steps to grow in my faith because it might put me outside of my comfort zone. I, was, uh, I meet on Tuesday mornings with uh, Rick Justo, a member of our church. Um, we have great fellowship every Tuesday morning. We have coffee. And uh, we were actually talking about this this week. We were laughing because we hear that so often from men that they don't want to come to men's group because they're, they're uncomfortable talking and they don't want to uh, maybe be vulnerable or let something out. And it's funny because, one, as many times as I've ever been in that setting, which is quite often, I've never seen a response of anything other than people just trying to love and encourage. Every single time. I've never seen a guy who's like, oh man, let me really dig in on this guy now, now that I know his weakness. You know, it's like, it's love, it's encouragement. And the other thing about that is what we know about guys is like, man, we're first in line to tell you how to fix something. <laughs> if something's going on in your life, it's like, man, you, you, we're all there. We got the answer. Let me, let me tell you. Let me tell you about how that happened in my life. And we got to hear that story. So it's just funny how sometimes we, we make these things about, well, it's, it's either that's not me or I don't have the ability to do that. You know, something my brother-in-law told me one time, which isn't an original thought to him, but that's how it came into my life, is that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the call, right? Because the, the fact of the matter is that none of us are fully equipped for the task. Whatever God's calling is on our life, ultimately it's to bring glory to Him and to bring people to Him. And we can't enact that heart change in them. That, that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. Third way that we can make a, God's calling circumstantial. We make God's calling about personal finances. Well, if I just had this money, then let me tell you what I would do with it, right? 
How many people have a, have a lottery plan in here? <laughs> Come on. Oh, you guys are going to go home and, and feel the conviction. I can feel it now. <laughs> How many people do you hear? It's like, oh, well, you know, I, I was going to play, uh, play the Powerball tonight because it's up to $300 million, as if you weren't going to play it when it was $200 million, you know? And let me tell you about what I'm going to do if I were to win. And you, and you hear this like 10-minute story about someone's plan and what they would do, and it always has something about uh, that they would give this money away, that they would take care of their church, and that they would do all these things. And really the question is, what are you doing now when you don't have that? Is what you're doing now, setting personal finances aside, is what you're doing now sacrificial? Because if you have $300 million and you give $250 million to the church or to different works, is that really sacrificial? What's the condition of your heart right now? And we see these examples throughout David's life that David didn't have the personal finances. He was a shepherd but he answered the call. David didn't have the ability to be king right off the bat, but each step along the way and, and leading to the timeline, David was faithful at each step of the calling. That's so important that we, we think of these things as, as a future tense, or we think of God's will in our life, we think of it as this future type thing but really we need to think of what are we doing now because every single day we are called to glorify God. Every single day. If we work on that thing, God's going to take care of the rest. We take care of what's in front of us at that point. When David was a shepherd, he was a shepherd. When he was called to go fight Goliath, he went and fought Goliath. When he was called to play the liar in front of Saul, he played it. When he was put in charge of armies, he went and did that. When it was time for him to be king, he served as a king. He was a great king. But when Samuel came and anointed him to be the next king, he didn't say, oh, well, I'm just going to hang out until it's time for me to be king. I know that I'm going to be king, so I'm just going to wait this out. It might be dangerous if I try to, you know, people might think I'm usurping the throne. It might put my life in, in danger, and I'm meant to be king, and I have these important things that I'm going to do in the future, so I'm going to take a back seat. No, he, he answered the call at each step. I want to read a story from a book I read a couple years ago that kind of came back to me as I was going through this. The story is called The Stone in the Road. There's a story told of a king who lived long ago in a country across the sea. He was a very wise king and spared no effort to teach his people good habits. Often he did things which seemed to them strange and useless. But all that he did, he did to teach his people to be industrious and careful. Nothing good can come to a nation, he said, 
whose people complain and expect others to fix their problems for them. The good things of life are given to those who take matters into their own hands. One night, while everyone else slept, he placed a large stone in the road that led past his palace. Then he hid behind a hedge and waited to see who would, what would happen. First came a farmer with his wagon heavily loaded with grain, which he was taking to the mill to be ground. Well, whoever saw such carelessness, he said crossly, as he turned his team and drove around the stone. Why don't these lazy people have that rock taken off the road? And so he went on complaining of the uselessness of others, but not touching the stone himself. Soon afterwards, a young soldier came singing along the road. The long plume of his cape waved in the breeze, and a bright sword hung on his side. He was thinking of the wonderful bravery he would show in the war. The soldier did not see the stone and struck his foot against it and went sprawling in the dust. He rose to his feet, shook off the dust from his clothes, picked up his sword, and stormed angrily about the lazy people who had no more sense than to leave such a huge stone in the road. Then he too walked away, not once thinking that he might move it himself. So the day passed, everyone who came by complained and whined because the stone laid in the road, but no one touched it. At last, just at nightfall, the miller's daughter came past. She was a hard-working girl and was very tired because she had been busy since early morning at the mill. But she said to herself, it's almost dark. Somebody may fall over this stone in the night and perhaps he could be hurt badly. I will move it out of the way. So she tugged at the heavy stone. It was hard to move, but she pulled and pulled and pushed and lifted until she moved it from its place. To her surprise, she found a box underneath it. She lifted the box. It was very heavy, for it was filled with something. Upon it was written, This box belongs to the one who moves the stone. She opened the lid and found it was full of gold. The miller's daughter went home with a happy heart. When the farmer and the soldier and all the others heard of what happened, they gathered around the spot in the road where the stone had been, and they scratched at the dust with their feet, hoping to turn up a piece of gold. My friends, said the king, we often find obstacles and burdens in our way. We may complain out loud while we walk around them, if we choose, or we can lift them and find out what they mean. Disappointment is usually the price of laziness. Then when the wise king mounted his horse, and with a polite good evening, he rode away. You know, I thought about this particular story because I can be that farmer and that soldier so often. So often in my life, I can find things to complain about. I can find others to blame. But we have this example of David, much like the miller's daughter. And why did the miller's daughter move it? 
Was she looking for her future glory? Was she looking for uh, something to change her life? Did she find that it was her purpose in life? She moved it because it was the right thing to do. She was thinking of others first. And so, to reiterate that point, we need to just take each step in that calling each day and just do the right thing. I know that's a, a Sunday school answer, right? But sometimes the Sunday school answers are there because they're true. Glorify God each day. Jesus gave us the answer that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. And so if you don't feel like, you know, wherever you're at in your life, if you don't know where you're going, what the next step is, maybe you feel like all that stuff is behind you, you know that that call is on your life every day, that you would do those two things. And if we take care of those two things, I know that God is faithful to take care of the rest. All right, let's get back to our text here. Let me find here. Okay, verse 9. Then a harmful spirit of the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I heard this before. You did hear it before. You heard it last week. <laughs> Saul's back to the same thing. He's not very uh, creative in his attempts to take care of David. He keeps coming back to the same thing. This was from uh, chapter 18 last week, 10 and 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David played the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, and he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So at this point, I'm thinking it might be time for David to try a different song when he's playing the song. But seriously, once again, this is a testament to David's, faith, David's faithfulness that he would even go back to that position. I mean, which one of us would go back to this place where we found ourselves not that long ago with a guy who tried to kill us? And lo and behold, he tries again. There's something Pastor Greg touched on last week that I'd like to quickly just take some time to examine. I don't think we should overlook the fact that a harmful spirit from God or from the Lord came upon Saul. This might be something that Christians find hard to understand or even difficult to process because we view God as our loving Father. And why would he put a harmful spirit on anyone? We can explain this particular instance a little bit better if we go back to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. In verses three, 13 and 14, sorry, chapter 16, 13 and 14. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. This verse is speaking directly to the role of the Spirit in the anointing of the king. David is at this point receiving that Spirit, and so Saul must lose that power if David's going to receive it. So that's why the Spirit has left Saul. And the harmful spirit from the Lord is not only a form of judgment, but it's being used to complete God's will. I think it's a mistake if we don't take this opportunity in Scripture to recognize God's sovereignty. It's great that we can dive deeper in this particular instance and bring clarity to this situation. But I think it's important that we realize and accept that God doesn't need our approval to enact His will. When God enacts His will in such a way and we find it in Scripture and maybe it rubs us the wrong way, We don't need to go, it's good if we can find answers, but if we can't find answers, the fault is not with God. We have to look inward at that point. If he decides to send an evil spirit, it doesn't matter if it can be explained to us or not. There's several instances in the Bible in which God bent man's will to accomplish his work. In Exodus 7, 1 through 4, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let all the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, And though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So here is God telling Moses, here's the task you have. I'm going to purposefully put Pharaoh against you and harden his heart. And I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, he's not going to listen to you. It's like, well, thanks, right? (laughs) Thanks for the heads up. Maybe you should just stay out of it, right? But God doesn't have to explain himself to Moses. And Moses does what he's supposed to do. In Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, this is Peter preaching, uh, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Here it is in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And Peter is pointing out here that this was God's plan. And not only that, God's plan was for him to die at the exact time that he died. And in order for that to be accomplished, he had to bend the will of all these parties involved against him because they didn't want him to die at the time that he died. They didn't want him to die on Passover while all the lambs were being slaughtered. But God took that and took their depravity and used it against them to stir it up and push the process through. And lo and behold, Christ died just as all the other lambs were being slaughtered. The ultimate lamb for us when all the other lambs are being slaughtered. And so we have these examples of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and God intricately weaving together the events that led to Jesus' death. And our first inclination might be to ask why. And to that, my humble and simple answer is, I don't know why God does what he does. <laughs> but I'm glad that he's the one that's doing it. I'm, I'm thankful that I serve a God that has an understanding beyond mine. I'm thankful that I have a God that has an understanding beyond any man that's ever lived on this earth. That they don't have the ability to succinctly put together the mysteries and the miracles of an all-powerful God. And if anything, God's sovereignty speaks to that characteristic of His. That He is all-powerful. That He is never changing. And so I challenge and encourage you, church, to delight in the sovereignty of God. You know, it's, it's easy for us. I can, I can take an example from my own life. I remember I went to a Christian high school, and I remember I was probably like a freshman or sophomore, and it was the first time, I was in a Bible class, it was the first time I had ever heard of uh, the doctrine of predestination. Basically that, in layman's term, that God's already decided everything, and He decides who's going to go to heaven and who's not. And That was a concept that was completely foreign to me. And when it was brought up, I was like, that's... No way. Like, no way. That's not it. That's not it. God would never do that. God would never do such a thing. And we had some kids in our class that were from a different church background, and they were staunchly like, oh, no, that's it. That's it. And I remember I had such this almost like an animosity against that idea. It's like there is no way that that is a thing. And I'm just, I had like an anger about it. And then I grew a little bit and I started to open up my Bible and read it more. And lo and behold, I start finding all these passages where Paul in particular is talking about 
the elect and the predestined and things like that. And, and when I read those things, I got to a point where it was like I would just avoid it because I didn't like it. I wasn't recognizing all of Scripture for what it was. I was picking and choosing. I was acting like the world. I was picking out the parts that I liked, the parts that fit my narrative. And really, where God has made a heart change in me is that when I come to these places in the Bible, I flip it on its head and I delight in it and I'm encouraged by it. And I'm encouraged by it because if God is sovereign, not only is He in control, not only does He have it handled, but we have this whole book full of promises. And if we serve an unchanging God who has been the same forever and is sovereign, then all of these promises in here are true. I went and found some, some of my favorites. Psalm 141, 9, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. 1 Chronicles 16, 34, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. James 1, 17, For every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Yeah, this, this one in particular hits me, and I, I was thinking about this this week, and this just hits me right now. Every good and perfect gift is from above. This is a little dicey. I, I'm going to step in it here and then try to make my way out, but... Um, you know, I feel, I, I honestly feel like I probably could have married many different women and, and still been a godly man and had a happy life and raised children and, and still accomplished so many things and found salvation and gone to heaven and would, would have had a great life. But, you know, earlier this year, we have this tradition, or um, Morgan's family has this tradition where we, when we get together, we get together for a birthday and we have a dinner, and then after everyone's done eating, we go around the table and we say what we appreciate about that person. And it's like, it's, it's like my favorite thing that we do. It's like a favorite of mine tradition. Um, and so Morgan's birthday was in February, and Rini, my mother-in-law, kind of set me up. She, she had me go last. She was picking who goes next, and she had me go last. And so I'm thinking about it, and it's like I, want to, I don't want to say what other people say. Um, I want to say something original. Um, but every time I would just start to think of something, I would feel myself, I would feel, feel tears welling up in me. And so by the time it came to me, I could barely get, you know, I got out like three things. And I said that she, she's the person that takes care of me. That's what I said. But, you know, honestly, 
I feel that emotion because she is God's greatest gift to me. She is God's gift from above. And as Pastor Greg mentioned, we're having our fourth child, and we uh, were at an anatomy. We were having an anatomy scan on Monday, and I was sitting there and just had such a surreal feeling of I'm married to Morgan Simpsrot, <laughs> and we're sitting here looking at our fourth child. Like 15-year-old me would be cutting backflips. <laughs> You know, but God's sovereignty at work because I truly feel that. Like I said, I could have married any other, any number of godly women and I feel like I could have had a happy life, but God gave me a gift. And I know that because I know of the characteristics of God. And I know it's not a mistake or by happenstance or anything. I know that God picked her out for me. Back to the promises of Psalm 19.7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. Isaiah 40.29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Deuteronomy 31.8 The Lord Himself goes before you and be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Joshua 1.19 Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. That's a big one for me. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to Him and He will make your path straight. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Psalm 34.10, that lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Matthew 11.28.30, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, lean, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus told her, this is John 11.25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after death. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Mark 11.24, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Psalm 37.4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jeremiah 29, 12, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Psalm 102, 17, he will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. I think that's pretty relevant today. And you know, that's such an issue that I take with the agendas that are out there today, especially the LGBTQ agenda. And, and one of the arguments or one of the sayings that they use so often that just rubs me in such a wrong way is, well, God made a mistake when he made me. An all-powerful, all-knowing God who transcends time, who holds the universe together, who makes the tides work, who makes the planets orbit the way they should. A God that you won't even put belief in. You want to claim made a mistake and that's going to justify that he made a mistake. It's not, it's not something in you. It's not something, it's not the sin that's in you. It's God who made a mistake. It just irks me. <laughs> okay, just two more. John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So, that's a lot of promises. And that's like the tip of the iceberg. We'd be here all night. 
And so back to the point, if you can even remember it. <laughs> Delight in the sovereignty of God. Delight in an unchanging God. Be encouraged in the fact that you serve a God who you can't even fully understand and grasp. And when you come into heaven, you'll know it all. You know, it always makes me laugh when uh, so often I hear people say something to the effect of, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. That's one thing I really want to know. Or when I get to heaven, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask God about why he made mosquitoes. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, maybe you will. Probably not. You're probably going to be feeling something to the effect of when you see your baby for the first time and mix with you have money in the bank and you kiss your love for the first time and you know all your needs are met and you're hugged by someone who loves you and all those things times a million is probably what you're going to feel and the last thing you're going to worry about is mosquitoes but <laughs> once we get there we'll know while we're here, let's just let God handle it. Let me get back to where I was here. So Saul sent, uh, this is uh, 1 Samuel 19, verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, sons, or, sorry, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. This is another example of a member of Saul's house who has chosen David over Saul. Interesting that both Jonathan and McCall have made covenants with David. Jonathan, the covenant that he made as a friend, and McCall, the, the marriage covenant that she made. And I think that has something to do with the fact that both of these people intimately know the character of these two men. And they know who they serve. If you turn to uh, Psalm 59, this psalm is actually, uh, the topic of this psalm is this scene that we see right here. When those who are coming to kill David, and David is fleeing from them. Psalm 59. The psalm's titled, Deliver me from my enemies to the choir master, according to do not destroy at Mictam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Verse 1, 
Deliver, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression of sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine. They run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. O Lord, God of hosts, you are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who, treacher who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They are bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. For God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the crushing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress, a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. O oh, God, you are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. The first part of this psalm, David is making a plea for protection. And the majority of the rest of the psalm, David is displaying the confidence that he already has in God. I think that we can take a lesson from that, that he's praying for his need, and before he even gets the answer, he rests in who his God is. Three different times he mentions his steadfast love. His unfailing and faithful love. Even though he's in distress, David places his trust in God. Back to 1 Samuel 19, verse 13. McCall took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. With, with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to, to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. <laughs> and when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillows of goat's hair at its head. 
And Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? I think it's funny because this is like the original Ferris Bueller's Day Off playing out. <laughs> you know, how many times have we like stuffed the pillows in the bed to make it look like somebody was in there, right? And what's even funnier is that they fall for it. Can you imagine? Saul has his most trusted men. I would imagine they were probably elite in their skills. And he sends them to assassinate David, these skilled assassins. And they come, and they come back to Saul. And he says, what happened? And they say, well, he was sick, so we didn't kill him. <laughs> it's just funny that Saul, you can just imagine this guy who's already paranoid, already off his rocker, a loose cannon, and what this must have taken him to. And you see, he's like, bring him to me in the bed, right? To the image that this talks about in verse 13, this is referring to an idol. And you may be asking, why did David have an idol in his house? David, who was so faithful to the God of Israel, why would David have an idol in his house? This was not something that would be worshipped or given sacrifices to or anything like that. It was actually the evidence of a family inheritance. It's very similar to a will. Um, another example of this is in Genesis 31, when Jacob and Rachel are fleeing from Laban. In verse 19 it says, Rachel stole her father's household gods. So these were small that she could hide and take away. And now if we fast forward to David and Michal, her idol was large enough to pass for a body of a grown man. So that we would expect that someone that would have royal inheritance, their idol would be much bigger. And so that explains that as far as the image. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Now David knows that he's running out of options. He's already run to his, the safety of his house, and Saul sent men there. So the only place that he knows to go is to Samuel, the original prophet who put the anointing on his life. And Samuel takes David in and takes him to Naoth, which is basically like a shepherd's camp. Verse 20, Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel staying, standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. 
when it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and you guessed it, they also prophesied. The prophesying by Saul's men was most likely praises and words of prayer to God, as well as rebukes and admonishments of Saul. It wasn't anything like speaking in tongues or anything like that. It was specific words that were given for this specific instance to speak to the situation and, and succinctly speak to Saul. Verse 22, Then he himself went to Ramah. This is speaking about Saul. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Saku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and laid naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Saul stripping naked is not only an example of how he's totally lost control and is evident to everyone around him, but also it's a symbol of him being stripped of his throne. That final sentence, is Saul also among the prophets? It's a harken back to chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 10 and 11, 1 Samuel chapter 10, 10 and 11. When they came to Gibeah, sorry, Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? In chapter 10, the people are asking the question because they know that this was not the behavior and this was out of character of Saul. They knew who Saul was, the son of Kish. And now, out of nowhere, he's prophesying, and it's almost as if they're in disbelief. Like, why would he, he's not really this man of God, why would he be prophesying? And so now in chapter 19, the people are asking the question almost sarcastically because before they were confused about the character of Saul. It's like, this is kind of our character, what's going on? Now they know the character of Saul because of all that has played out. And so the people are asking the question, That Saul, because they know that he does not have the character of a man of God. So as we wrap up chapter 19, we're at the point now where we see two kings on different trajectories. Saul's jealousy and paranoia has brought him to an all-time low. David is on the run, seemingly farther from the throne than he has ever been. 
and he continues to seek God's will, resting in his steadfast love because he knows the characteristics of his God. Would you bow your heads with me, church? Father God, we just thank you for who you are, Lord. We praise you for your characteristics. That you are not only our creator, the God of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into existence, but you are also our Abba Father. And you come to us in our time of need. And you have given us your word, this book of promises, Lord. Most important of all those promises is the salvation that can be found in your son. And you make it available to us. We praise you for who you are. Lord, I thank you so much for this church body. I thank you for how they minister to me the effect that they've had in my life, how they love me, how they love my family, the evidence that I can see in my family because of how you've used them, because they're willing vessels, Lord, so many of them. I pray that as we go out and we finish out this week, that we would take these lessons we would rest in your sovereignty, Lord. We would take each day, be present in that day, and rest in the fact that you have given us the strength to get through that day. You have provided everything we need for that day. And that we would take that, be encouraged, and we would glorify you with our lives, Lord. That every person we encounter, they would see you when they see us. I pray for your protection on all, the, all of those who are here and those who cannot be with us, Lord, and that we would have joyous celebration when we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.